Hello, I am Malcolm Shaw, the Sir Robert Jennings Professor of International Law at the University of Leicester, the UK, and the practicing barrister in London. The acquisition of title to territory. International law is based on the concept of the state. The state in its turn lies upon the foundation of sovereignty, which expresses internally the supremacy of the governmental institutions and externally the supremacy of the state as a legal person. But sovereignty itself is founded upon the fact of territory. Without territory, a legal person cannot be a state. It is undoubtedly the basic characteristic of a state and the one most widely accepted and understood. There are currently some 200 distinct territorial units, each one subject to a different territorial sovereignty and jurisdiction. Since such fundamental legal concepts as sovereignty and jurisdiction can only be comprehended in relation to territory, it follows that the legal nature of territory becomes a vital part of international law. Indeed, the principle whereby a state is deemed to exercise exclusive power over its territory can be regarded as a fundamental axiom of classical international law. The central role of territory is underlined by the existence of legal rules protecting its inviolability. The principle of respect for the territorial integrity of states is well founded as one of the linchpins of the international system, as is the norm prohibiting interference in the internal affairs of other states. Although a number of factors have tended to reduce the territorial exclusivity of the state in international law, such as technological and economic globalisation and the rise of such transnational concerns as human rights and the environment, territorial sovereignty remains a key so concept in international law. And this is essentially because states so require it. It is in their interests. International law has developed a series of rules governing the transfer and control of territory, not least because of the significance of the consequences of the change of sovereignty, such as the alteration in the nationality of the inhabitants of the territory being transferred, and in the legal system under which they live, work and conduct their relations. As Judge Huber noted in his much quoted phrase in the island of Palmer's case, sovereignty in relation to a portion of the surface of the globe is the legal condition necessary for the inclusion of such portion in the territory of any particular state. Territorial sovereignty, therefore, relates to the most complete bundle of rights and duties flowing from title as recognised in international law. It reflects both the exclusivity of the competence of the state regarding its own territory and the obligation to protect the rights of other states. The term title itself relates to both the factual and legal conditions under which territory is deemed to belong to one particular authority or another. As the International Court noted in the Burkina Faso Mali case, the word title comprehends both any evidence which may establish the existence of a right and the actual source of that right. Title to territory in international law is, more often than not, relative rather than absolute. Thus, a court in deciding to which of two or more states an area of territory legally belongs will decide upon the basis of the better or best legal case, 
and will take into account any special characteristics of the territory in question and any particular or peculiar structure of, of sovereignty. However, not all rights or links will amount to territorial sovereignty. Personal ties of allegiance may exist, but these do not necessarily lead to a finding of sovereignty. The classical technique of categorizing the various modes of acquisition of territory, occupation of terra nullius, prescription, cession, accretion, and subjugation or conquest is based on Roman law and is not adequate. Many of the leading cases do not specify a particular category or mode, but tend to adopt an overall approach. We will go through briefly some of the more significant factors. Boundary treaties, whereby either additional territory is acquired or lost, or uncertain boundaries are clarified by agreement between the states concerned, constitute a root of title in themselves. They constitute a special kind of treaty in that they establish an objective territorial regime valid against all. Such a regime will not only create rights binding also upon third states, but will exist outside of the particular boundary treaty, and thus will continue even if the treaty in question itself ceases to apply. The reason for this exceptional approach is to be found in the deeply felt need for the stability of boundaries. Accordingly, many boundary disputes, in fact, revolve around the question of treaty interpretation. It is accepted that a treaty should be interpreted in the light of Articles 31 and 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, 1969, in good faith, in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to its terms in their context and in the light of its object and purpose. Essentially, the aim is to find the common will of the parties, a concept which includes consideration of the subsequent conduct of the parties. These provisions are accepted as being part of customary international law. Relevant too is what in the Eritrea-Ethiopia case the Boundary Commission referred to as the principle of contemporaneity, by which it meant that a treaty should be interpreted by reference to the circumstances prevailing when the treaty was concluded. In particular, the determination of a geographical name, whether of a place or of a river, depended upon the contemporary understanding of the location to which that name related at the time of the treaty. Further, in seeking to interpret an ambiguous provision in a boundary treaty, the subsequent practice of the parties will be relevant. However, where the boundary line as specified in the instrument is clear, it cannot be changed by a court in the process of interpreting delimitation provisions unless there is clear evidence that the relevant parties consented to a change in the title as laid down in that treaty. Accretion describes the geographical process by which new land is formed and becomes attached to existing land, as for example the creation of islands in a river mouth or the change in direction of a boundary river leaving dry land where it had formerly flowed. Where new land comes into being within the territory of a state, it forms part of the territory of the state and there is no problem. 
As regards a change in the course of a river forming a boundary, a different situation is created. Depending upon whether it is imperceptible and slight, or a violent shift. In the latter case, the general rule is that the boundary stays at the same point along the original riverbed. However, where a gradual move has taken place, the boundary may be shifted. If the river is navigable, the boundary will be the middle of the navigable channel, whatever slight alterations have occurred. While if the river is not navigable, the boundary will continue to be in the middle of the river itself. Session involves the peaceful transfer of territory from one sovereign to another, with the intention, of course, that sovereignty should pass, and has often taken place within the framework of a peace treaty following a war. Indeed, the orderly transference of sovereignty by agreement from a colonial or administering power to representatives of the indigenous population could be seen as a form of cession. Because cession has the effect of replacing one sovereign by another over a particular piece of territory, the acquiring state cannot possess more rights over the land than its predecessor had. This is an important point, so that where a third state has certain rights, for example, of passage over the territory, the new sovereign must respect them. The Island of Palmas case emphasised this point. It concerned a dispute between the United States and the Netherlands. The claims of the US were based on an 1898 treaty with Spain, which involved the cession of the island. It was emphasised by the arbitrator and accepted by the parties that Spain could not thereby convey to the US greater rights than it itself possessed. The basis of cession lies in the intention of the relevant parties to transfer sovereignty over the territory in question. Without this, it cannot legally operate. Whether an actual delivery of the property is also required for a valid cession is less certain. It will depend on the circumstances of the case. Although instances of cession usually occur in an agreement following the conclusion of hostilities, it can be accomplished in other circumstances such as the purchase of Alaska by the United States in 1867 from Russia, or the sale by Denmark of territories in the West Indies in 1916 to the United States. How far a title based on force can be regarded as a valid legal title recognisable by other states and enforceable within the, within the international system is a crucial question. Ethical considerations are relevant, and the principle that an illegal act cannot give birth to a right in law is well established, although in, in, in international law it is rather nuanced, and one may need to take into account the effect of recognition of the act by the international community. Conquest, the act of defeating an opponent and occupying all or part of its territory, does not of course constitute a basis of title to the land. It does give the victor certain rights and indeed responsibilities under international law as regards the territory, the rights and responsibilities of belligerent occupation, but the territory remains subject to the legal title of the ousted sovereign. Under the classical rules, formal annexation of territory 
following upon an act of conquest would operate to pass title. It was a legal fiction employed to mask the conquest and transform it into a valid method of obtaining land and international law. But only after the conclusion of a war could the juridical status of the disputed territory be finally determined. It is, however, clear today that the acquisition of territory by force alone is illegal under international law. This may be stated in view, for example, of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter and other practice. Security Council Resolution 242, for example, emphasised the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war, while the 1970 Declaration of Principles of International Law Concerning Friendly Relations, adopted by the UN General Assembly, provides that no territorial acquisition resulting from the threat or use of force shall be recognised as legal. Acquisition of territory following an armed conflict, therefore, would require further action of an international nature in addition to any domestic action whether in the form of a treaty of cession by the former sovereign or of international recognition. It is customary in the literature to treat as separate categories the occupation of terra nullius or territory belonging to no socially and politically organised people and prescription or the legitimization of a doubtful title by the passage of time and the presumed acquiescence of the former sovereign. However, there are several crucial factors that link the concepts so that the acquisition of territory by virtue of these methods, based as they are upon the exercise of effective control, is best examined within the same broad framework. Most cases involve contesting claims by states where both or possibly all the parties have performed some sovereign acts. As in the instance of occupation, so prescription too requires that the possession forming the basis of the title must be by virtue of the authority of the state and not a manifestation of purely individual effort unrelated to the state's sovereign claims. And this possession must be public so that all interested states can be made aware of it. Both occupation and prescription rely primarily upon effective possession and control. The element of time is here also relevant as it affects the effectiveness of control. The general rule in such circumstances is that in a dispute, the claim or situation in question, or relevant treaty for example, has to be examined according to the conditions and rules in existence at the time it was made and not at a later date. This meant, for example, that in the island of Palmer's case, the Spanish claim to title by discovery, which the United States declared it had inherited, had to be tested in the light of international legal principles in the 16th century when the discovery was made. This aspect of the principle is predicated upon a presumption of and indeed need for stability. But it was also noted in this case that while the creation of particular rights was dependent upon the international law of the time, the continued existence of such rights depended upon their according with the evolving conditions of a developing legal system. Although this stringent test would not be utilised in the case of territories with an established order of things.
This proviso has in practice been rather carefully and flexibly interpreted within the context of all the relevant rules relating to the acquisition of territory, including recognition and acquiescence. How far this aspect of the principle of international law may be extended is highly controversial. The better view is to see it as one element in the bundle of factors relevant to the determination of effective control, but one that must be applied with care. In certain situations, they, there may exist a determining moment at which it might be inferred that the rights of the parties have crystallised, so that acts after that date cannot alter the legal position. Such a moment might be the date of a particular treaty, where its provisions are at issue, or the date of occupation of territory. It is not correct that there will or should always be such a critical date in territorial disputes, but where there is, acts undertaken after that date will not be taken into consideration unless such acts are a normal continuation of prior acts and are not undertaken for the purpose of improving the legal position of the party relying on them. Of crucial importance, however, is the exercise of effective authority or effectivity. As Judge Huber argued in the Island of Palmer's case, the actual continuous and peaceful display of state functions is in case of dispute the sound and natural criterion of territorial sovereignty. However, control, although needing to be effective, does not necessarily have to amount to possession and settlement of all the territory claimed. Precisely what acts of sovereignty are necessary to found title will depend in each instance upon all the relevant circumstances of the case, including the nature of the territory involved, the amount of opposition, if any, that such acts on the part of the claimant state have aroused, and international reaction. Indeed, in international law, many titles will be deemed to exist not as absolute, but rather as relative concepts. The state succeeding in its claim for sovereignty over terra nullius over the claims of other states will in most cases have proved not an absolute title, but one relatively better than that maintained by competing states, and one that may take into account issues such as geography and international responses. The International Court noted in the Eastern Greenland case that it is impossible to read the records of the decisions in cases as to territorial sovereignty without observing that in many cases the tribunal has been satisfied with very little in the way of the actual exercise of sovereign rights, provided that the other state could not make out a superior title. This is particularly true in the case of claims to sovereignty over areas in thinly populated or unsettled countries. However, we cannot take this too far, and the arbitral tribunal in the Eritrea-Yemen case emphasised that there must be some absolute minimum requirement for the acquisition of territorial sovereignty. In the island of Palmer's case, Judge Huber declared that the Netherlands possessed sovereignty on the basis of the actual continuous and peaceful display of state functions as evidenced by various administrative acts performed over the centuries. 
It was also emphasised that manifestations of territorial sovereignty may assume different forms according to conditions of time and place. Indeed, the intermittence and discontinuity compatible with the maintenance of the right necessarily differ according as inhabited or uninhabited regions are involved, it was said. Additionally, geographical factors were relevant. Such activity in establishing a claim to territory must be performed by the state in the exercise of sovereign powers, atis de souverain, or by individuals whose actions are subsequently ratified by the state, or by corporations or companies permitted by the state to engage in such operations and thus performed on behalf of the sovereign. Otherwise, any acts undertaken are of no legal consequence. While international law does appear to accept a notion of geographical or natural unity of particular areas, whereby sovereignty exercised over a certain area will raise the presumption of title with regard to an outlying portion of the territory comprised within the claimed unity, it is important not to overstate this. It operates to raise a presumption and no more, and that within the wider concept of display of effective sovereignty which need not apply equally to all parts of the territory. Neither geographical unity nor contiguity are as such sources of title with regard to all areas contained within the area in question, nor is the proximity of islands to the mainland determinative as such of the question of legal title. In both the Eritrea Yemen and Eritrea Ethiopia cases, the tribunals felt able to consider separately the legal situation with regard to subgroups existing within natural unities. However, the significance in law of state activities or effectivite will depend upon the existence or not of a legal title to the territory. Where there is such a valid legal title, this will have preeminence and effectivity may play a confirmatory role. However, where the effectivity are in contradiction to the title, the latter will have preeminence. In the absence of any legal title, then effectivity must invariably be taken into consideration, while where the legal title is not capable of exactly defining the relevant territorial limits, effectivity then play an essential role in showing how the title is interpreted in practice. Accordingly, examples of state practice may confirm or complete but not contradict legal title established, for example, by boundary treaties. In the absence of any clear legal title to any area, state practice comes into its own as a law-establishing mechanism, but its importance is always contextual in that it relates to the nature of the territory and the nature of competing state claims. Subsequent conduct may be relevant in a number of ways. First, as a method of determining the true interpretation of the relevant boundary instrument in the sense of the intention of the parties. Secondly, as a method of resolving an uncertain disposition or situation. For example, whether a particular area did or did not fall within the, the colonial territory in question for purposes of determining the Uti Possidatis line of which more later, or thirdly, 
as a method of modifying such an instrument or pre-existing arrangement. The Eritrea-Ethiopia Boundary Commission explained the general principle that the effect of subsequent conduct may be so clear in relation to matters that appear to be the subject of a given treaty that the application of an otherwise pertinent treaty provision may be varied or may even cease to control the situation regardless of its original meaning. The various manifestations of the subsequent conduct of relevant parties have a common foundation in that they all rest to a stronger or weaker extent upon the notion of consent. They reflect expressly or impliedly the presumed will of a state, which in turn may in some situations prove of great importance in the acquisition of title to territory. However, there are significant theoretical differences between the three concepts of recognition, acquiescence and estoppel, even if in practice the dividing lines are often blurred. In any event, they flow to some extent from the fundamental principles of good faith and equity. Recognition is a positive act by a state accepting a particular situation. And even though it may be implied from all the relevant circumstances, it is nevertheless an affirmation of the existence of a specific factual state of affairs, even if that accepted situation is inconsistent with the term of a treaty, as for example in the Tabla case. Acquiescence, on the other hand, occurs in circumstances where a protest is called for and does not happen, or does not happen in time in the circumstances. In other words, a situation arises which would seem to require a response denoting disagreement, and since this does not transpire, the state making no objection is understood to have accepted the new situation. The idea of estoppel in general is that a party which has made or consented to a particular statement upon which another party relies in subsequent activity to its detriment or the other's benefit cannot thereupon change its position. While, of course, the consent of a ceding state to the session is essential, the attitude adopted by other states is purely peripheral and will not affect the legality of the transaction. Similarly, in cases of the acquisition of title over terra nullius, the, the acquiescence of other states is not strictly relevant, although of useful evidential effect. However, where two or more states have asserted competing claims, the role of acceptance or consent by third parties is much enhanced. In the Eastern Greenland case, for example, the court noted that Denmark was entitled to rely upon treaties made with third states insofar as these were evidence of recognition of Danish sovereignty over all of Greenland. Recognition and acquiescence are also important in cases of acquisition of control contrary to the will of the former sovereign. Where the possession of the territory is accompanied by emphatic protests on the part of the former sovereign, no title by prescription can arise, for such title is founded upon the acquiescence of the dispossessed state, and in such circumstances consent by third states 
is of little legal consequence. However, over a period of time, recognition may ultimately validate a defective title, although we should not make too much of this today. Non-recognition may prevent effective control from ever hardening into title, as in the case of the South African Bantustans or the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, in quotes, or indeed Iraq's purported annexation of Kuwait in 1990. The significance of the role played by the UN Security Council in such matters is usually critical. Acquiescence and recognition are also relevant where the prescriptive title is based on what is called immemorial possession. That is, the origin of the particular situation is shrouded in doubt and may have been lawful or unlawful, but is deemed to be lawful in the light of general acquiescence by the international community or particular acquiescence by a relevant other state. Accordingly, acquiescence may constitute evidence reinforcing a title based upon effective possession and control, rendering it definitive. Estoppel is a legal technique whereby states deemed to have consented to a state of affairs cannot afterwards alter their position. Although it cannot found title by itself, it is of ev evidential and often of practical importance. Estoppel may arise either by means of a prior recognition or acquiescence, but the nature of the consenting state's interest is vital. Where, for example, two states put forward conflicting claims to territory, any acceptance by one of the other's position will serve as a bar to a renewal of contradictory assertions. This was illustrated in the Eastern Greenland case, where the court regarded the Norwegian acceptance of treaties with Denmark, which incorporated Danish claims to all of Greenland, as preventing Norway from contesting Danish sovereignty over the area. The leading case on estoppel, however, is the Temple of Preah Vihar case, which concerned a border dispute between Cambodia and Thailand. The frontier was the subject of a treaty in 1904 between Thailand and France, a sovereign over French Indochina, which included Cambodia, which provided for a delimitation commission. The border was duly surveyed, but was ambiguous as to the sighting of the Preah Vihar temple area. Thailand called for a map from the French authorities and this placed the area within Cambodia. The Thai government accepted the map and asked for further copies. A number of other incidents took place, including a visit by a Thai prince to the temple area for an official reception with the French flag clearly flying there, which convinced the international court that Thailand had indeed tacitly accepted French sovereignty over the disputed area. In other words, Thailand was estopped by its conduct from claiming that it contested the frontier in the temple area. However, it is to be noted that estoppel in that case was one element in a complexity of relevant principles which included also prescription and treaty interpretation. The case also seemed to show that in situations of uncertainty and ambiguity, the doctrines of acquiescence and estoppel come into their own, but it would not appear correct to refer to estoppel as a rule of substantive law. 
the existence of an estoppel should indeed not be lightly assumed. Subsequent conduct itself would, in the material sense, include the examples of the various exercise of sovereign activity, diplomatic and similar exchanges and records and maps and so forth. So far as the status of maps is concerned, this will depend upon the facts of their production as an item of evidence. It was noted in the Burkina Faso Mali case that maps are only extrinsic evidence of varying reliability or unreliability which may be used along with other evidence of a circumstantial kind to establish or reconstitute the real facts. In such circumstances courts have often exhibited a degree of caution taking into account for example that some maps may be politically self-serving and that topographic knowledge at the time the map is made may be unreliable. However, maps annexed to treaties illustrating the boundaries so delimited will be accepted as authoritative. Beyond this, it is possible that cartographic material prepared in order to help draft a delimitation instrument may itself be used as assistance in seeking to determine the intentions of the parties where the text itself is ambiguous. Well, more generally, the effect of a map will in other circumstances vary according to a number of factors, ranging from its provenance and cartographic quality to its consistency with other maps and the use made of it by the parties. It, it will be clear, I think, from what has been said so far, that apart from the modes of acquisition that rely purely on the consent of the state, and the consequences of sovereignty, cession or accretion, the method of acquiring additional territory is by the sovereign exercise of effective control. Both occupation and prescription are primarily based upon effective possession. And although the time element is a factor in prescription, this in fact is really concerned with the effectiveness of control. The principle of effective control applies in different ways to different situations, but its essence is that the continuous and peaceful display of territorial sovereignty is as good as title, as noted in the Island of Palmas case. Such control has to be deliberate sovereign action, but what will amount to effectiveness is relative and will depend, for example, upon the geographical nature of the region, the existence or not of competing claims, and other relevant factors such as international reaction. It will not be necessary for such control to be equally effective throughout the region. The doctrine of effectiveness has displaced earlier doctrines relating to discovery and symbolic annexation as in, them, as in themselves sufficient to generate title. Effectiveness has also a temporal as well as a spatial dimension, while clearly the public or open nature of that control is essential. There are a number of other concepts which may be of some relevance in territorial situations. One of the core principles of the international system is the need for stability and finality in boundary questions and much flows from this. Case law has long maintained this principle Reflective of this concept is the fundamental and well-established principle of territorial integrity, 
it is protected by a series of consequential rules prohibiting interference within the domestic jurisdiction of states, as for example Article 2.7 of the UN Charter, and forbidding the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity and political independence of states, particularly Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. However, the principle does appear to conflict on the face of it with another principle of international law, that of, that of the self-determination of peoples, and a few comments are in order on this critical and timely issue. The right of all peoples to self-determination appears in the UN Charter and is emphasised in the 1960 Colonial Declaration, the 1966 International Covenants on Human Rights and the 1970 Declaration on Principles of International Law. It can without doubt be regarded as a rule of international law. However, it has been interpreted as referring only to the inhabitants of non-independent territories in the sense of colonial territories and territories under foreign occupation, although the precise details of this have yet to be fully worked out. Practice has not supported its application as a principle conferring the right to secede upon identifiable groups within already independent states. This was clearly enunciated, for example, by the Canadian Supreme Court in the reference re-secession of Quebec case. The court declared that international law expects that the right to self-determination will be exercised by peoples within the framework of existing sovereign states and consistently with the maintenance of the territorial integrity of those states. The court continued to note cautiously that the right to unilateral secession arises only in the most extreme of cases and even then under carefully defined circumstances. This is at best controversial and would take a situation of humanitarian catastrophic proportions for it to be operative, if at all. Accordingly, the principle of self-determination as generally accepted by the international community in fact fits in with the concept of territorial integrity. It cannot be used to further larger territorial claims in defiance of internationally accepted boundaries of sovereign states. But it may be of some use in resolving cases of genuinely disputed frontier lines on the basis of the wishes of the inhabitants. Other than that, self-determination finds its logical and accepted role in the context of respect for the human rights of individuals and groups within internationally recognised independent states. Linked to this question of, in, of territorial integrity is the doctrine of uti possidatis, which sets out the presumptive territorial framework for the independence of new states, whether emerging from colonial control or otherwise. It is perhaps best exemplified in the practice of African states. Explicitly stated in a resolution of the Organization of African Unity in 1964, which declared that colonial frontiers existing as at the date of independence constituted a tangible reality and noted that all member states pledged themselves to respect such borders. 
Although the doctrine of Uti Possidatis first appears in the early 19th century Latin America and has been applied on other continents as well. The Chamber of the International Court noted in the Bocono Faso Mali case that the principle had in fact developed into a general concept of contemporary customary international law and was unaffected by the emergence of the right of peoples to self-determination. In the African context particularly, although it applied universally, the obvious purpose of the principle was to prevent the independence and stability of new states being endangered by fratricidal struggles provoked by the challenging of frontiers following the withdrawal of the administering power. The application of the principle has the effect of freezing the territorial title existing at the moment of independence to produce what the chamber described as the photograph of the territory at the critical date and resulted in administrative boundaries being transformed into international frontiers in the full sense of the term. The chamber declared that the principle applied generally and was logically connected with the phenomenon of independence wherever it occurred in order to protect the independence and stability of new states. The application of this principle beyond the purely colonial context has been underlined, particularly with regard to the former USSR and the former Yugoslavia. In the latter case, the Yugoslav Arbitration Commission established by the European community and accepted by the states of the former Yugoslavia, made several relevant comments. In, in opinion number two, for example, the Arbitration Commission declared that whatever the circumstances, the right to self-determination must not involve changes to existing frontiers at the time of independence, uti possidatis juris, except where the states concerned agree otherwise. Accordingly, a presumption exists that in the absence of evidence to the contrary, internally defined units within a pre-existing sovereign state will come to independence within the spatial framework of that territorially defined unit. Of course, the principle of uti possidatis is not able to resolve all territorial or boundary problems. Where there is a relevant applicable treaty, then this will dispose of the matter. On the other hand, where the line which is being transformed into an international boundary by virtue of the principle cannot be conclusively identified by recourse to authoritative material, then the principle of uti possidatis must allow for the application of other principles and rules. Essentially, these other principles will focus upon the notion of effective control or effectivity. The issue has been extensively analysed by the International Court, for example in the Burkina Faso, Mali and later El Salvador, Honduras cases. The Court distinguished between colonial effectivity, immediate post-colonial effectivity and more recent effectivity. Each of these might be relevant in the context of seeking to determine the uti possidatis pre-independence line. In the case of colonial effectivity, that is, 
the conduct of the colonial administrators as proof of the effective exercise of territorial jurisdiction in the area during the colonial period, the court underlined the following. Where the act concerned corresponded to the title comprised in the uti possidatis juris, then the effectivity simply confirmed the exercise of the right derived from a legal title. Where the act did not correspond with the law as described, that is, the territory subject to the dispute was effectively administered by a state other than the one possessing the legal title, preference would be given to the holder of the title. In other words, where there was a clear uti possidatis line, this would prevail over inconsistent practice. Where, however, there was no clear legal title, then the effectivité play an essential role in showing how the title is interpreted in practice. The court also noted that it could have regard in certain circumstances to documentary evidence of post-independence effectivité when it considered that they afforded indications with respect to the uti possidatis line provided that there was a relationship between the effectivity concerned and the termination of the boundary in question. Such post-independence practice could be examined not only in relation to the identification of the uti postatis line, but also in the context of seeking to establish whether any acquiescence could be demonstrated both as to where the line was and as to whether any changes in that line could be proved to have taken place. This post-independence practice could even be very recent practice and was not confined to, in, to immediate post-independence practice. Where the uti possidatis line could be determined neither by authoritative decisions by the appropriate authorities at the relevant time, nor by subsequent practice with regard to a particular area, recourse to equity might be necessary. What this might involve would depend upon the circumstances. In the Burkina Faso Mali case, it meant that a particular frontier pool would be equally divided between the parties. In the El Salvador Honduras case, it meant that resort could be had to an unratified delimitation of 1869. Thus, the principles underpinning the international law of territory focus on title, effective control, and third-party conduct. They are simple in theory, but complex in practice. But above all, they are necessary, for the alternative is a return to a free-for-all, where the powerful take what they want, and the weak suffer without recourse or mercy. If international law is about anything, it is about the mitigation of power and respect for all, irrespective of strength.